This morning I'd like for you to open up your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. We're continuing with our series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, which is a chronological walk through the life of Jesus using all four Gospels. We are harmonizing the four Gospels as we walk through the life of Christ, verse by verse. And we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and we come to this verse, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. We're only going to focus on one verse today, okay? One verse. But oh, what a verse. Today we come to perhaps the most famous of the famous texts in the Sermon on the Mount. I know I say that every week. This is one of the most famous uh, texts that Jesus, or one of the famous scriptures that, that you've heard, that people, people like to quote or whatever. But, but this one is the, the most famous of the famous. We come to the pinnacle, as some would call it, of Christian ethics. We come to the passage known as the golden rule. The golden rule. Now, as you're finding Matthew 7, 12 in your Bibles, I'm going to bring up a picture here of a very familiar story that, kids, I'm sure you, you've seen this movie or you've read the book. What is this? The what? I heard someone say Narnia back there. That is not Narnia. That is the Wizard of Oz, okay? I, I, I'll be cool to see them in Narnia. I'm, uh, but anyway, that's the Wizard of Oz. Of course, that's a famous story, and, and one of the most famous parts of the Wizard of Oz, we can know they're on the journey to see the wizard, and there's lots of symbolism in the Wizard of Oz, and lots of that symbolism isn't necessarily good symbolism, but there's lots of different symbolism in the Wizard of Oz. But one of the things that they travel along is what? They, they're traveling down what? The yellow brick road. Now, the, the author of uh, the Wizard of Oz said that that brick was supposed to be gold. That's supposed to represent gold. But he didn't say much beyond that, the author that is, before he passed away, as to what, what he was trying to symbolize there by, by making the yellow brick road a golden road. And there's been lots of speculation. Some say that he was talking about financially the, the gold standard and was, was talking about how that, that wasn't good. And I don't know if that's true or not. But one of the theories put forth out there is that the author was talking about the golden rule. And if we'll just follow the golden rule, everything will turn out Okay, if we just follow the golden rule, if we just stay on the yellow brick road. Now, I have a little bit of a problem viewing the golden rule that way. Jesus actually doesn't call this passage of Scripture we're going to read here in a second the golden rule. He doesn't call it that. That title of golden rule wasn't given to this text until sometime in the late 1600s in England. And to be quite frank, I don't like the title. I don't like the title Golden Rule. I'm afraid people will see it like they see the yellow brick road. As a rule, you've got to stay on in order for life to turn out, work out just fine for you and fine for everyone else. They view it perhaps as a, by understanding it as a golden rule, perhaps people view it as a, something they can accomplish in their own willpower. Now I'll explain more later in the sermon as to why I don't like the word, the title, Golden Rule. But for now, let us stand as we get ready to read this short passage of Scripture together. We stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. We believe, as Christians, we believe that this book here is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. And so we stand in the honor of reading it. It's just one short passage of Scripture, this one verse. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. It says this. So whatever you wish... That others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we come this morning and we ask you, Lord, to grant us the grace to come to this passage of Scripture with fresh eyes this morning, this very famous passage of Scripture. Help us to think about what Jesus was trying to communicate, what Jesus was communicating as he said these things. And Lord, help, it, help us to have clear minds to understand. Help us to see that what Jesus is saying truly is revolutionary if we understand it in its context. If we understand the demands that Jesus is giving to us. So God, help us this morning. Holy Spirit, open up ears and eyes to hear and to see your word. And grant me a mouth to speak it properly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, A.W. Pink, theologian and writer, A.W. Pink says the golden rule, he says its very brevity evidences the divine wisdom of him who spoke as never man spoke, for who else could have condensed so much into so few words? So this, this golden rule, as people look at it, it's very simple, it's very straightforward, it's, but it's very profound. And when we come to the golden rule in, in the Sermon on the Mount, we are coming to the conclusion of a long section of ethical teaching. And therefore, this statement really can be seen as a summary or as the climax of Jesus' teaching up to this point. And some call it Jesus' most revolutionary teaching. But here's the deal. Despite what A.W. Pink said, you may or may not be aware of this, but Christianity is not the sole proprietor of the golden rule. Almost every religion in the world has some form of the golden rule. From Buddhism to Zoroastrianism to Wicca, every world religious system has an ethical maxim that is either similar if not identical to the golden rule. Here's a couple of examples. In Baha'i, in the Baha'i religion, it says this, Ascribe not to any soul that which thou wouldst not have ascribed to thee, and say not that which thou dost not. Or Confucianism, Confucius said this, Never impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. The interesting thing is that in many of the other golden rules from religions, from other religions, many of these golden rules were given before Jesus even spoke these words here. So immediately, if we're honest, I think questions begin to rise up in our hearts. Questions like, is Jesus actually saying anything new? Is what he is saying here, is it really revolutionary? Why did so many already say the things that Jesus said here before he said it? Did Jesus, as one scholar I read this week said... Did Jesus plagiarize the golden rule? Now, the first way to understand the existence of golden rules in nearly all other religions is that we know that there are whispers of the Almighty in all men's souls. For all men are created in the image of God. All men are given common grace. All men have the works of the law written on their hearts. And all men have consciences that bear witness to God's legal demands. Romans 2.15 teaches us that. So the echoes of God's justice still resides even in sinful, depraved hearts. Now some say that Jesus' golden rule is revolutionary 
due to the fact that the other religious examples or the religious uh, golden rules always put it in the negative, like the ones I just read. They put it in the negative or cautionary form. So basically, do not do to others what you do not want them done to you. So many of the other religions, it's, it's, a, it's a law of avoidance. But Jesus turns it around and puts it in the positive. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So the way Jesus puts it, it's not a law of avoidance, but a law of engagement. It's a do. This is a command that Jesus gives us, an imperative, a call to action. So let me say this morning that I do believe, and this is my first point, I do believe that Jesus is teaching us to be creatively proactive in carrying out the golden rule. I believe that with all my heart. He is, by the way he words it here, he is calling us to be creatively proactive in, in carrying out the golden rule. He is calling us to bring about change in our world. Christian ethics have always been built on a positive ethic of engaging the culture and transforming society. That's why Christians go into Ebola-ridden countries instead of trying to get out of them. Okay, I read an article this week. Maybe you read it as well. I think it was in Slate Online Magazine where this, the author was just very frustrated that the only doctors over there fighting Ebola are Christians. And he, he was just, the author of the article was just frustrated with that and finally concluded, well, I guess we just had to put up with it because they're the only ones over there doing it. Well, that, that should say something about the Christian ethic, that we, we, ha, we believe in an ethic of not of avoidance, don't give Ebola to someone else if you don't want to get it. We believe in, a, in, a, in an ethic of engagement. Go do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Christ followers, kingdom citizens, don't have a negative ethic, but a positive one. It's also why Christian missionaries, as they've spread the gospel around the world, you can just trace it as the gospel has spread around the world. What has followed in its wake? The starting of schools and hospitals and universities. That has always followed in the wake of the spread of the gospel. Because Christians believe in engaging the culture in a positive way. Almost all of our universities in the United States, almost all of them, the very few universities in the United States that were started for secular purposes, almost every single one of them, including the big ones, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, were started for the purpose of spreading the gospel. Because Christians engage the culture, they educate, they, they meet needs, they try to help the sick. It's a positive ethic of engagement in the world. So is that all there is here then in Jesus's? version of the, of the golden rule, is that all there is which is in the sermon right here? That Jesus is simply taking an old ethic and revolutionizing it by turning it positive. Is Jesus simply calling us to a little bit higher ethic than the rest of the world? Just a little bit better than everyone else. That's what many believe. Matter of fact, I was so frustrated this week as I prepared the sermon. I'll just be honest with you. This passage of Scripture has gotten such pathetic treatment by commentators and even by, by other preachers, I, there's just not a, good, a lot of good, thoughtful dealing with this text. And people will limit it to that. Well, Jesus just makes it positive instead of negative. But there's a problem here. Despite what most commentators say, Jesus is not the first person to put the golden rule in positive form. You may or may not know that. 
It's true that most of the teachers prior to Jesus put it in the negative form, but there are a good number of examples of the golden rule appearing in positive form prior to Jesus' earthly ministry. Most notably, the Chinese philosopher Mosey and the Greek historians Herodotus and Isocrates. They all taught or wrote some positive form of the golden rule before Jesus' earthly ministry. And even other ancient ethicists inferred the positive from the negative. So when we consider these facts, we may be tempted to think that what Jesus is saying here isn't as revolutionary as we first thought. But I think Jesus is saying something revolutionary because I think there's much more to see here than what just meets the eye. And to see more clearly what Jesus is calling believers to do here, there are two keys here in this text. To see what he's telling us to do from this text, what he's telling believers to do, there are two keys found in the text. And from these two keys, I want to make three points. So let's take the first key and try to open up the golden rule a little bit more for us this morning. Here's the first key. It's the words, it's found in these words, the law and the prophets. Okay? Those words right there, the law and the prophets. Matthew 7, 12, again. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the Law and the prophets. Now, as we mentioned before, the law and the prophets is simply a way of referring to the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. So Jesus is saying here that the golden rule is the law and the prophets, meaning that all the ethical demands of the law in regards to our relationship with other people, our fellow man, is summed up in the golden rule. Now, the golden rule was first formulated in the Old Testament in the law and the prophets, Leviticus 19, verse 18. Second half of that verse says this, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, even secular scholars believe that this, from Leviticus, is the oldest formulation in history of the golden rule. So technically, we could make the argument, since our God is one, we can say Jesus did put it positively first, but he did so in the Old Testament and only restates it here in the New Testament. And we see the golden rule again in the Old Testament in Leviticus 19, verse 34. But more than the golden rule just being found in the law and the prophets, the scripture tells us that it is the summary of the law and the prophets. It's not just in the law and the prophets, it is the law and the prophets. Romans 13 verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. Or James chapter 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. We need to see that Jesus is purposely and strategically mentioning these words, law and prophets, at this point in the sermon. Let me say that again because that's key to, to so much here. Jesus is strategically mentioning the law and the prophets at this point in the sermon right here. If you've been tracking with us, through the Sermon on the Mount, you'll remember that Jesus has already mentioned these same words, law and prophets, earlier. Way back in chapter 5. You remember that? Way back in chapter 5, near the beginning of the sermon. I'll remind you, Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish, what? The law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. He then takes the next three verses, 18, 19, and 20, to explain what that means. So I agree with many scholars who believe that Jesus is using these two references here to the law and the prophets as rhetorical bookends on one side of the sermon, on the other side of the sermon, as rhetorical bookends for his sermon. 
The technical word would be inclusio, which means it's a technique by which a teacher, using the same phrase or word, brackets his teaching, the beginning and the end. And and teachers do this all the time. You may notice me sometimes. I'll start off with an illustration, and I'll usually bring that illustration back to mind when? At the end of the sermon. I'll kind of mention the illustration again and bring it back into the sermon. That's totally intentional because I'm, I'm bracketing what I'm doing here. I'm giving you a signal that the sermon's almost done, okay? <laughs> but I'm also trying to get you to comprehend the whole here. I'm not just telling you it's almost lunchtime, okay? But that's here there is this bracket, this phrase, the law and the prophets. Now, if that is true, then we need to think about the structure of the sermon. I want you to track with me here as I discuss this. Because if we miss the structure, we'll miss what Jesus is saying. Now, the Beatitudes, chapter 5, verses 3 through 12, served as introductory material for the sermon. And then in verses 13 through 16 of chapter 5, Jesus shows us, uh, gives us sort of a thesis statement of what his disciples should do. We should positively influence the world through kingdom living so that people will see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. So he, he gives an introduction, then he gives a good thesis statement, and then he gets into the body of teaching. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 7, verse 12, are the great, this great body of teaching. And it's this great lengthy discussion of what those kingdom ethics should look like. He begins with a discussion of, of him fulfilling the law, which I just mentioned in verse 17. And then he continues to proclaim the righteousness that distinguishes his disciples from the world. Then he discusses the practices which show that our righteousness is not hypocritical or false. And then Jesus teaches us to treasure, uh, to the right treasure that righteous people should seek. And then he shows us how, how righteousness affects our relationships to our brothers, to our God, and to all of mankind, which brings us to today's text, verse 12 of chapter 7. And he concludes this final portion of the ethical teaching with these words, law and the prophets. So those two mentions of the law and the prophets way back in 517 and here in 712 serve as brackets surrounding Jesus' discussion of kingdom ethics, or better put, as kingdom righteousness. What does Christian righteousness look like? And so the remainder of the sermon, okay, verses 13 through 17 here in chapter 7, the remainder of the sermon are Jesus' conclusion, where he'll talk about our authenticity, how our righteousness should send us down the right road, how it should produce the right fruit, and should leave us standing on the right foundation. And we'll discuss that conclusion over the next few weeks. But for now, let us see that when our Lord mentions law and the prophets this second time, we need to be reminded of what he said the first time. Now, it took us three weeks to examine chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. It took us three weeks, as we were going through the Sermon on the Mount, way back in March, to, to examine that. So, if you want a deeper discussion of what Jesus was saying there, I'll refer you back to those sermons which were the first three sermons of the month of March this, past, this, this year. So I'm going to give us a very real quick recap, though, this morning. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. And you can go ahead and just flip your Bible back two pages, or one page, depending on how big your print is, and, uh, and, and go to these verses. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all, until all is accomplished. Now first, Jesus declares a few things about the law and the prophets. Okay? The, and again, the law and the prophets is the Old Testament. 
working backwards through verses 17 through 18, we saw that Jesus declared, first of all, the comprehensive inspiration of the whole Old Testament. When he says not an iota or not a dot will pass away from the law until it's all accomplished, he is declaring that it is comprehensively inspired. It belongs to God. It is inerrant. Then we look at Jesus' words in verse 18 when he says, For truly I say to you, and in those words Jesus is declaring his authoritative jurisdiction over all of the Old Testament. So comprehensive inspiration of the Old Testament and then authoritative jurisdiction over the Old Testament by Jesus. And then we saw that Jesus declared himself to be the ultimate realization of the Old Testament, of the law, or the ultimate intention of it. That's why he said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Okay, there's that phrase, law and prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And how does he do that? How does he fulfill the law and the prophets? Well, we saw back in those sermons that he is the interpretation of its meaning. He is the intention of its history. He is the completion of its promises. He is the actualization of its rituals. And he is the perfection of its demands. He is the fulfillment of the law. So after this sweeping assertion about himself in relation to the Old Testament law, Jesus says this in verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever, number one, does them, and then number two, teaches them, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So why does Jesus then tell us to do that? Well, we saw back in those sermons that even though Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, he still calls on us, his kingdom citizens, his people, to be teachers of the law. And I'll remind you that we distinguished back then between the moral, civil, and ceremonial laws of God. Do you all remember that sermon? I had a board up here and I drew that out. Please tell me you remember some of my sermons. I had a board up here. I drew out the differences between the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial laws of God. And we discussed at that time that the civil and ceremonial laws of God serve their purpose to regulate the theocratic nation of Israel. But God's moral law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments, was enacted from creation. And it can never be set aside. Okay? And these are the, this is the law that we are to teach. But why are we to teach it? Because the law drives men to Christ. The law reveals the character of God, and it also reveals the condition of man. But not only are his disciples to be, are we, his disciples to be teachers of the law, according to Jesus, we are also to be doers of the law. So we are to be keepers of the Old Testament law. Why? Because it flows out of our union with Christ. Jesus has kept and completed the law for all of his people. Jesus has implanted and written the law on the hearts of Of all of his people, therefore all of his people are empowered to carry out and live by the law of Christ that is within them. That is why Jesus calls us to this sweeping statement of righteousness in verse 20 of chapter 5. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This leaves us seeking a righteousness outside of ourselves. So we are left knowing that we need the law of God to be fulfilled for us. So by faith, we believe that Jesus Christ has done that. He has fulfilled it all for us. And secondly, we need the law of God fulfilled in us. So by faith, we believe that we are united to Christ and he abides in us through his Holy Spirit, fulfilling the law in us. So that recap, that extensive recap, if you will, takes us back to our sermons in March because if we don't get that, we don't get this. If we don't get Matthew 5, 17 to 20, we don't get Matthew 7, verse 12. So what, 
What is Jesus telling us to do? I think that one of the things that Jesus wants us to see in this text, he is teaching us that he is the ultimate fulfillment of the golden rule. Okay, to, to help us with the text, let's create a little formula. Here, number one, if Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, which we just talked about, and if the golden rule is the law and the prophets, which today's text says, then Jesus is the fulfillment of the golden rule. Right? Or there's more. If Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets for us and in us, as we just discussed, and if the golden rule is the law and the prophets, then Jesus fulfills the golden law for us and in us. Are you tracking with me? So Jesus is telling us something here about the golden rule. Jesus is telling us that he himself is the fulfillment of the golden rule. What Jesus is doing here is more than merely calling us to a higher ethic. He isn't telling us to follow a yellow brick road. I know I mentioned, that doesn't mean I'm near the end of the sermon, by the way. Okay? I've still got a ways to go. That's the midway point, all right? He's not calling us to some sort of higher ethic. He's just given us this, this magnificent body of teaching. I shouldn't say, let me back up. He's not calling us merely to a higher ethic. He has just given us a magnificent body of teaching, this Sermon on the Mount that demonstrates and clarifies what the law and the prophets teach. That's why he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And he has shown us that the demands of the law and the prophets are higher than we ever imagined. And higher than we in our flesh are ever able to attain to. He has raised the bar so high that he even says in the Sermon on the Mount, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what he's been doing in this sermon. He's been blowing us away with an ethic that's so high, a yellow road that is so narrow, there is no way we can do it. That's why he tells us, I have fulfilled the law and the prophets. He is the one who has done it. And so those with ears to hear are left, after reading the Sermon on the Mount, after hearing the Sermon on the Mount, are left falling on our faces, recognizing our spiritual poverty and mourning over our sin and turning to the only one who perfectly kept the law, who perfectly kept the Sermon on the Mount, who perfectly kept the golden rule. And then by faith in him and through our union with him, he does a continuous work in us to cause us to, number one, desire to keep the law, desire to do the Sermon on the Mount, desire to keep the golden rule, and number two, give us the ability to keep the law and the ability to keep the Sermon on the Mount and the ability to keep the golden rule. And this is what Jesus is driving to us to. So the next thing I think we need to see is that Jesus is teaching us that he is our inward means for keeping the golden rule. He is our inward means for keeping the golden rule. He is the wellspring in us through which his, through his spirit, he is the wellspring in us that enables us to keep the golden rule. The Sermon on the Mount ethic is higher than we're able to climb. It is deeper than we're able to swim. Our only hope is Christ in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, the, one of the other differences between a positive ethic and a negative ethic is that a, a positive ethic can't be legislated. 
We can, we can legislate a negative ethic. Society can legislate people into not doing this or that. But no legislation can force proactive goodness toward others. So the Christian ethic is not one that can be manufactured, but one that must come from within. It can't be legislated. Galatians 5, 16, we read this earlier, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And that, my friends, brings me to the second key word in today's text. The second key word. We look at the law and the prophets. Here's the second key. It's a little bitty word. It's the word so. So. Little words are big in the Bible. They are often keys to unlocking big truths. Don't ignore little words like so, which could be translated therefore, or and, or for, or because. You see, these conjunctions are the tendons that keep the bones of arguments connected. So Jesus starts the golden rule with therefore, or so. So, therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. That means that this text is connected to the previous text. This text is standing on the previous text. The previous text is the foundation for understanding this one. So what was said before this verse? Well, let's look back. If you were here last week, you know it was a section of Scripture where Jesus is talking about prayer. Ask, verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. So we, That so connects this golden rule to what we just read about prayer. Jesus is tying prayer to today's text. How? Well, first, we need to remember who we are praying to. It is our Father. So the fatherhood of God is important to understanding the golden rule. You see, the golden rule is how God's children act. It's how God's children are expected to act. We proactively love others for the glory of our Father. And the only people that can truly act like that are God's children because only God's children have been born again. And thus have been given new hearts, hearts and dwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, which, as we said earlier, is the only way we can truly desire to do the golden rule for the right reasons and the only way we can truly carry out the golden rule. And this connection to verses 7 through 11 helps us to see why Jesus doesn't mention loving God prior to the golden rule. Because I know what some of you guys are thinking out there. Some of you guys know your Bible. Hopefully all of you do. You're thinking that, well, wait a second here. Doesn't the Bible tell us that the, the law and the prophets is summed up by not only loving man, but first loving God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself, which we see in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. Jesus even says there that on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. But here in this text, Jesus is simply saying that we should love our neighbor. neighbor, And that's the sum of the law and the prophets. But that's because Jesus has already dealt with our love of God in the preceding verses. For children, by nature of who they are, love the Father. It is ex expected that natural children love their fathers. How much more do spiritual children love their father? For we are now bound by an unbreakable love. So yes, the love of Father does come first and is clearly implied in the preceding verses. 
We love our Father, and that love of our Father is naturally and inextricably followed by love for our fellow man. So the first connection we see here is in who we are praying to. But secondly, we need to remember, as we studied last week, what we are praying for, what we are praying to our Father for. When we ask, seek, and knock, we are praying persistently, urgently, and expectantly, not for our fleshly desires to be gratified, but we are praying for greater things, higher things, for spiritual treasures. We, with our eyes fixed on heaven, we are asking and seeking and knocking for God to make the Sermon on the Mount real in us, make it happen in us. That's what we're praying for. We are asking him, begging and imploring him to make us meek, to make us hungry and thirsty for righteousness, to make us peacemakers, and so on and so on. You see, that high ethic of the Sermon on the Mount is our treasure. That high ethic that we've just, Jesus has just given us, that's what we want if we're his children. I want to be that person, Jesus. And so we ask, and we seek, and we knock, and guess what? God answers those prayers because it is his delight to see us being transformed into the image of his son. Because Jesus is the one who did all that perfectly and is doing that in us, making us like himself. And so having prayed that, knowing that God is doing a work in us to make us like Jesus, we are inwardly motivated to be creatively proactive in doing good to others, which is the golden rule. So with that, let me make one final point. Jesus is teaching us that he is our interpretive guide for properly living the golden rule. By taking us back to prayer, okay, praying for the very righteousness of Christ to be manifest in us, which is what verses 7 through 11 are about, Jesus is showing us the proper interpretation of the golden rule so we might live it rightly. Because if you think about it, the golden rule doesn't work without Jesus. It doesn't. If it did, then man would have been able to fix things on his own. As we've already said, every religion has the golden rule. If it worked without Jesus, then the world would already be a better place, wouldn't it? That's why I get frustrated with Christian leaders. And quite frankly, I was shocked, as I said earlier, how little treatment the golden rule got from good, solid commentators. But I get frustrated with those, those who simply reduce the golden rule to an ethic we need to try to keep without tying it to the work of Christ. I read more than one commentator this week who said, who says something along these lines, and this is a quote from one of the commentators, but I didn't put the name here. If man would just keep the golden rule, all poverty, famine, pestilence, and war would be averted, period. And he went on to discuss nothing about the work of Christ. Because if that were true, if that's all it was, let's just all stay on the yellow brick road, then we wouldn't be having ISIS running around chopping people's heads off. That's not helpful, friends, just saying this, just saying it's just a, a high ethic we need to try to attain to. That's not helpful. There's nothing unique there. What's Christian about that? The Dalai Lama says that. Friends, if we don't have a unique message, then we have a damning message. Let me say that again. If we don't have a unique message, we have a damning message. If Jesus' golden rule isn't different than the other golden rules then we just need to pack it up and go home because we're all doomed. We need to see that man, apart from Christ, cannot keep the golden rule. Only the life and work of Christ can guide us into the proper way to live and to practice the golden rule. Without Jesus as the guide and interpreter of the golden rule, the golden rule makes no sense. It doesn't work. For example, 
What is the person who's trying to carry out the golden rule is a masochist, okay? M- meaning he enjoys pain. So therefore, what he would want done to himself is not what you want him doing to others. No. The golden rule does not work for that man. Or consider the pluralistic world we live in today where, where everyone considers morality to just be relative. You do what you want to do, and I'll do what I want to do. Whatever is right for you is right for you. Whatever is right for me is right for me. Postmodern thinkers of our day have rightly concluded that the golden rule does not work in a relativistic society. The thinking is this. How can you do unto others what you want done to you if what they want is different than what you want? George Bernard Shaw famously said, the golden rule is that there is no golden rules. He suggested another rule. Do not do unto others as they should do unto you. Their taste may not be the same as yours. That's the world we live in today. Don't do unto me what you want me to do unto you because I don't know what, if I want you to do what I want. No. What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. So let's don't get into this golden rule stuff. It doesn't make sense apart from a fixed objective truth. And that truth is Jesus Christ. It doesn't work apart from him. When there is no objective, set, moral standard, and everything is subjective and relative, then the golden rule is useless. It does not work apart from objective truth, and namely, truth incarnate, Jesus Christ, through whom God has spoken in these last days. So let me conclude by just saying a few things. It is Christ who guides us in how we carry out the golden rule, and more than that, enables us by his Holy Spirit to keep the golden rule. For he himself is the fulfillment of the golden rule. Jesus is the golden rule. So if you want kind of a bottom line today, Jesus is the golden rule. And therein lies why I don't like the title golden rule. It's not a rule. It's a way of life flowing out of a relationship. This is not a rule. I hate rules. We all do. By our sinful nature, we hate rules. And we're unable to keep rules. This is not a golden rule. This is a golden way of life that flows out of a relationship. What Jesus teaches us in today's text, it's a way of life. That's why I entitled the sermon, The Golden Way of Life. A way of life that we treasure, that we desire, that bubbles up in us as we submit to the Spirit and are made into the image of the one who obeyed the golden rule Perfectly. So as we evaluate our relationship with others, we try to do unto others as Jesus has done unto them. It's totally guided by Christ. We want to do unto others as Jesus has done unto them and unto us. So Christian, in this room this morning, if you're a believer this morning, we aim by God's grace to live selfless, sacrificial lives of service to others for the glory of God. We are to be creatively proactive as we are inwardly driven to love others. The golden way of life, then we'll see, will change everything we do, right? It changes our relationships in the church. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Philippians 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It'll change our relationships in the home, with our children, with our wives and husbands. In Ephesians 5, we're told to love and submit as Christ loves and as the church submits. We are to follow his example of the golden way of life. 
In 1 Corinthians 7, in regards to our rights in marriage, we are told that our bodies are not our own, but they belong to our spouse. So the golden way of life rules everything that we do. It should be seen in our service to our lost neighbors. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. But let us do good to everyone. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. The golden way of life should be seen in every single corner of a believer's life. It marks how much we are submitted to our Savior. Unbeliever in the room this morning, if you don't see that this golden rule is actually a golden way of life, that you in and of yourself are incapable of carrying out, if you don't, if you think that somehow you can rise to the ethical challenges of Jesus, you might as well go listen to the Dalai Lama. I'm not going to tell you from this pulpit to simply follow the yellow brick road. I will tell you that you can't stay on that road. It is impossible that it will lead you to hell. But there is hope. You must see how far short you fall from what Jesus expects from people. You must see how you are spiritually bankrupt. And if you see your spiritual poverty that you cannot live the golden way of life, and if you then mourn over that sin and you therefore turn from that sin, you repent of that sin, and if you then put all of your hope in Christ who died for the sins of his people on a cross, taking the punishment we deserve for falling short of the golden way of life, but more than that, he gives us his righteousness so that when our Father looks at us, he sees Christ's perfection, he sees Christ's obedience, he sees Christ's perfectly obeying the golden rule, if you will then trust in that Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and to make you into a new person and make you right with God, then you will be saved and you will begin your journey of living the golden way of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I praise you and thank you so much that when Jesus came and proclaimed his word as he preached And specifically as he preached on that mountain to his disciples so many years ago. He didn't preach a 10-step program to getting right with God. Instead, he preached a righteousness that we must have if we're going to be children of God. And in doing so, he drove us to the point that we realize We need Jesus. We need to be forgiven. We can't do this. We need to be given a righteousness that's not our own. And so it's very clear from the scriptures that as Jesus taught this ethic, he was also pointing his disciples to himself. They may not have fully gotten it at that point, but as he hung on that cross and he bled and he died, and then as he rose again, And as he took the scriptures and expounded them from the very beginning to the very end and showed them that it was all about him, that all of Revelation was about redemption, their eyes were opened and they saw what I pray and hope that we see here this morning, namely that Jesus is our only hope. So Jesus, I pray this morning that if there be anyone lost in here this morning that does not know you have never placed their hope in you, that you would open up their eyes to see how sinful they really are. 
And that in that brokenness over their own sin, they would turn to you, place all their hope in you, and become a new creation. So Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.